We now return to Beyond Synth. Hey there, welcome to the show. This is episode 18 of Beyond Synth. My name is Andy Last. Welcome to the program. On today's episode is Kid Cassio, a super talented guy who makes some really catchy pop songs. But uh, before we get to that, I would just like to get through some business here because I've made 18 episodes now and I've never once actually tried to promote the show. So I figured I should probably do that. So if you, loyal listener, and when I say listener, I mean that. Um, please take a moment to like the Facebook page at some point. There is a Beyond Synth Facebook page. Like it. I would appreciate it. And you don't have to worry about getting any, like, spam or whatever. I really only use the Beyond Synth Facebook page to post new episodes of the podcast. I, I never say anything or have comments or whatever. It's basically just episode postings. So if you're afraid, you know, sometimes, you know, there's something like, oh, I'm going to like applesauce. And then like 10 times a day, applesauce is like posting shit about applesauce. And you're like, well, why'd I like this stupid page? So I promise you uh, liking the Beyond Synth page will not burden your life. Please follow me on Twitter. I am at Andy Last. Again, I don't really spam or do anything. I just uh, support a lot of the uh, synthwave artists and, uh, you know, retweet their things they say. And occasionally I'll say something stupid. Uh, what else? Oh, uh, if you do listen to the show using iTunes, uh, please rate and comment. I don't know how it works, and uh, I don't think anybody does. But I think if you just give it five stars and just say something, that is good but I'm not really sure why. And again, it doesn't even have to be a review. I think you can just like, just put five stars and then just send me like a recipe for a sandwich or something. I mean, I'm sure they don't read them. Oh, and there's also a SoundCloud page. There is a Beyond Synth SoundCloud, which I don't really do too much with right now, but I hope to in the future start uh, posting episode previews or uh, highlights and that sort of thing. Right now, there are two kind of joke songs that you can listen to, which are written about Italian synthwave artist Vincenzo Salvia. I don't know really what spawned them, but they're there if you'd like to listen to them. And one of them actually has a backing track uh, done by Ogre, who's obviously super talented. He does the theme song for this show. And uh, I sang on top of one of his tracks. Some would say ruining it, but just people who know what they're talking about. And just before we get to Kid Casio, I should point out that we had a tiny technical problem with his microphone. So I ended up using the backup mic, which was his iPhone, which was just sitting on the table in front of him. So although the episode sounds pretty good, occasionally you might hear him sort of shuffling and, and moving about uh, just because the iPhone was just picking up the whole room. And that is that. So please enjoy my chat with Kid Cassio. I'm here today with Kid Cassio, a.k.a. Nathan Cooper. Is that correct? That's it. I have a few uninspired questions that are literally lifted from your bio on your website. Cool. So you were talking about when you were young, being inspired by a school visit. Yes. Paul Hardcastle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He came down with uh, a really early version of... Uh, one of the first emulators just kind of did these uh, amazing um, examples of sampling, which I'd never heard before. You know, obviously the Fairlight had been out for a while and stuff, but, you know, I wasn't really up on that. I was kind of only about 
10 or 11 years old yeah he came in with this thing and it just kind of blew me away and then that christmas i was given the kind of what i guess would be the toy version yeah. <laughs> of you know an, an emulator or fairlight which was this thing called the casio sk1 which had I, I don't know it must have been about five seconds of sampling memory you could kind of sample any sound on it and there was no way of kind of changing the sound or any effects or anything like that but you know it was just really basic and then you could play it across the keys you know inevitably as a kind of 10 year old you'd burp into it or something like that and it just everything could be played off off that but yeah i picked one up again recently actually because uh, i don't know what happened to my original one and then i saw one um, on ebay last year and just got hold of it and uh, realized actually it wasn't as good as i remembered <laughs> it was crap i'm just trying to figure out why he was at your school yeah do you, do you know what i don't actually know there, there must have been some kind of link there was with his, he, one of his son's friends went to the school, something like that. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery to me. But yeah, that <laughs> kind of just turned me on. You know, and I had a great teacher at that time as well who really got me into music. And he had a kind of stash of old Casio keyboards uh, at the back in the music room. And I used to go every lunchtime. And, you know, I formed my own little band and we were in the kind of local papers. And we used to play, the you know, the school assemblies. That That, that was kind of the start for me of kind of my love of of music and I guess synth music. You said you were sort of in several sort of like bands, but you mentioned about singing, dancing sort of boy bands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess because, you know, there came that point in the 90s, you couldn't really be making synth pop anymore. You know, it really became a dirty word. And I, and I was in a band throughout most of my teens playing, I guess, kind of Duran Duran style pop, you know, power rock. But that was towards the end of the 80s when it was getting quite unfashionable. And then, of course, at the beginning of the 90s, you know, the whole kind of grunge thing happened. Mm -hmm. Nirvana came along and kind of turned everything on its head that had been before. And I guess, you know, I, I remember turning up at venues with kind of banks of synths in the early 90s. And the kind of promoters would be like, what on earth are you doing? You know, <laughs> no, one, you know, no one plays synths anymore, let alone analog synths. It was just like, what are you? what is this, you know? And eventually it got to the point where I guess there was no room for that, that music. So kind of my attentions turned towards dance music, which was the only music at that time being made on synthesizers. There is this whole resurgence sort of synthwave scene thing happening now. A lot of the dudes are around my age, at least the people that I've talked to, or even younger. Some guys are like in their 20s, like weren't even alive in the 80s, but they, you know, they're inspired by it. Yeah. I grew up in the 80s. But I was still sort of experiencing some of the 80s music in the 90s yeah. Uh, because, you know, I didn't discover Depeche Mode until I was probably like 10 or 11. So I discovered them in the 90s listening to their 80s music. Yes, yes. And I did listen to dance music because there was that exactly what you're saying was I needed my my synth fix <laughs> and it didn't exist. Yeah. So I was listening to like 2 Unlimited and stuff, which is probably why my one musical regret, like I don't have many, like I, I do tend to still like a lot of the things I liked as a kid. Mm. I do feel that 2 Unlimited didn't age very well. No, definitely. I think that's the problem with a lot of that music. When I listen back to it now, it sounds really kind of thin, doesn't it? It Kind of the beats and stuff. It just, what I hear someone describe as the other day, battery powered techno. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite thing about that music I think it's referred to as the middle eight raps. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Well, actually, you mentioning the, these 
boy bands that I used to be in. So we were kind of taking that kind of boy band thing, but making that kind of music. And there was a guy in the band that used to always rap. And so we, we used to always do these awful mid-late raps, but you'd have to rap in a kind of a slightly Swedish accent. <laughs> 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 but yeah, yeah, I used to love those. Uh, they'd all have it, and, and and a really big, you know, catchy chorus. And um, mm. it kind of ticked a few boxes for me because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the 90s, you know, the stuff was going on. What about, you know, Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that? But I'm very much kind of from the the pop song background, you know, uh, and I've always loved, I love synths, but I love pop music. And for me, there was a brief time in the 90s where those two things collided with kind of dance, Euro pop music. Although it was very cheesy and you're right, it hasn't dated well. But, you know, th there was elements of that I, I enjoyed for, for a while. It's funny because there was this time where there was this stigma, and I think it still exists, where people like to make fun of the 80s. Yeah. It's just one of those things, you know, yeah. Oh, the 80s. Yeah. But... 80s pop is so much better than that rock pop garbage from the 90s. Yeah, totally. I was just early in high school. That's the stuff that was on the radio, at least here. Mm. Bands like Hootie and the Blowfish and stuff yeah. that just <laughs> sang these pop rock songs that I have no idea who they're designed for. Yeah. To this day, they still drive me nuts when I hear them because it's like this aggravating nothing music it's bland isn't it and the great thing about and i always argue this the the great thing about 80s pop music for a kind of brief time in the early 80s actually right up until kind of you know 1987 88 it just became really experimental but at the same time it was shifting it was selling in its millions and kids were buying it which was this amazing juxtaposition between it being you know if you listen to japan or depeche mode or, or any of these bands, you know, or Duran Duran even, they're really clever lyrics. They're really well-crafted, intelligent songs. And they were always trying to push the boundaries of technology. Right. And yet they were selling to 13-year-old girls. You know, they mm -hmm. were on the cover of, we had a magazine over here called Smash Hits that was, you know, totally aimed at kids. Yet these people were Gary Newman would be on the front and be talking about science fiction and alienation and stuff. And it, it just, there was a, just a short spell when intelligent pop was really cool, you know, and I don't think it's happened again since then. Definitely the, the lyrics took a big dive with the dance music. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things was, because <laughs> when we were talking about the, the middle eight raps, what I always loved yeah is how the dude would always come in to do the rap, but he's always sort of like kind of talking tough. <laughs> but the lyrics of the song could be, it could be a woman, she's sitting there going like, you know, flowers in the field. And then this rapper would come in and be like, flowers, flowers in the field. Yeah, and yeah. Like, exactly. You've hit the nail on the because it always started with the, the, like the words of the chorus that the woman had sung. Mm -hmm. And then he had to end on that as well. <laughs> the rap would do it. So he'd start by saying, flowers, flowers in the field. And then it'd be something on something. And then he'd end on that as well. Yeah. And then back straight back into the chorus. They're all very formulaic, but you know, there were some nice synth lines and it was music that was 100% made on synth. So kind of that part of it, you know. Some of the stuff that I liked a little bit more in the 90s was probably more of the Euro stuff. And some yeah, of it same. didn't hit here as as strongly as it hit in europe mm. too unlimited was big i mean i still i still think they play get ready for this at hockey games and stuff you know it's a staple of sports events okay i'm trying to think of some others did you have snap you know rhythm as a dancer yes did you have um corona rhythm of the night this is the rhythm of the night <laughs> that's yeah, the one yeah. i mean that's one of my favorite songs from the 90s that's that's just such a great well-produced 
brilliant pop song. But there was sort of a division. I'm trying to think of if there's any specific ones I can mention. I mean, there was some funny ones. Like, did you ever, did you ever hear Modo? No. I'm going to check them out now. We didn't have no. We never had Modo. Modo. Oh, you had M-O-D-O. You had Modo. It's terrible. Well, <laughs> Modo is difficult to. It's basically. It's like a. It's German techno. I think the dude was Italian. You would know the song if you heard it because it's called Eins Vines Polizei, and he just repeats. <laughs> it, it's like <laughs> mantras, where it's literally like this hard pumping. Bass that's just like, eh, duh, duh, duh. and then he just goes like, Eins, Weins, Polizei. and it's it's hysterically funny. Oh man, I don't, I honestly don't, I don't know that. I'm gonna check that out. <laughs> Sorry, every time I think about it, it makes me laugh. You'll understand when you listen. <laughs> well, I was performing this stuff, you know, we kind of made an album of this kind of Euro pop, and then we got together a band, four of us, and I, I was kind of my, I was chief songwriter and producer, the other two guys were really great vocalists, and then one guy was a brilliant dancer, you know, we always have to have one guy who's a really good dancer, <laughs> and... Um, and then we did like a tour of we did a tour of schools and kind of under eighteen nightclubs up and down the country. We did did this for like a a couple of years with an agency, and it would really be really kind of hit and miss. We'd, we'd be kind of playing these school lunch times where we'd go into the kind of school hall, and sometimes we'd get absolutely mobbed. I remember a couple of times I had to kind of stop the show halfway through, even though these. Kids had absolutely no idea who we were. We were just a bunch of guys standing there dancing and singing. (laughs) Um, It was ridiculous. But then, you know, the flip side of the coin, we'd turn up to a kind of a nightclub in the evening and get spat on from a balcony, you know, and have kind of beer poured on us and stuff like this. So it was was a double-edged sword. What is the modern? The modern was a band. So I, I did, I did, we did these kind of boy bands, and the other guy who I was in the boy band with, um, we were really close, kind of school friends, and our love was eighties music, you know, and that's that's what we we wanted to do, but we hadn't found an outlet for it. And then right at the end of the nineties, this band called Ladytron came along. They released their first album, and I it was one of those moments where I just heard it, and I was like, "Wow, we we can finally do what we've always wanted to do." Now, you know, the time is right. <laughs> you know, it suddenly came a time where it wasn't embarrassing to talk about the eighties, and it finally you could just about start mentioning it again. And so, you know, Lady Tron were really playing on that, and we kind of got together and we said, "Look, let's just do something, you know, that we really want to do. Let's." play on all our favorite bands and create something in in that genre and so we did that and immediately there was much more success than we'd had with any of the boy band stuff because i think we were just being much more true to ourselves and straight away we started having interest from record companies you know we gigged around for a bit a normal kind of thing where they say that we're ready to sign you but we need you to kind of work on your live act and get a demo together and all this kind of stuff and then by kind of i think 2003 or 2004 we got signed to Universal and um, we released a couple of singles as the modern
first one got to number 35 in the charts. And then, unfortunately, everyone that had kind of championed us and signed us at um, Universal were sacked. (laughs) So there was this massive kind of turnaround and suddenly they were much more interested in the new bands that they were signing and all our kind of promotion disappeared and it was decided to, you know, um, try and get our next song into the charts. Our manager kind of suggested these kind of dodgy, uh, <laughs> how do I put this? <laughs> I don't know how to do it. <laughs> kind of a dodgy sort of buying strategy where basically um, he bought like a ton of our own singles. Oh. And we kind of got this call midweek from the chart saying, oh, great news, guys. You know, on the Wednesday, you're gonna you're gonna go in at number eight on the charts. We're like, brilliant, and then we get a call on the Friday. Uh, no, actually, um, there's been irregular buying patterns, and you've been disqualified. And that was that. Was that something that you even did? You understand what he was doing, or were you sort of like just putting your trust in your manager, and then he had this crazy scheme? Like we knew that the single wasn't going to chart anyway because we'd had that absolutely zero promotion for it Mm -hmm. so we kind of went along with whatever was going on and kind of um just kept our noses out and just kind of thought well whatever he's going to do can't be any worse than what's going to happen anyway i mean with hindsight i I don't know it it probably could have panned out better because we were disqualified from the charts i mean we got a load of press for that which you know they say all press is good but it was really negative press you know saying that we bought our own single and you know we were fakes and blah 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 and and then as a result of that, we got dropped by Universal. So it was a kind of snowball of bad things. <laughs> so did they, did they... I'm just trying to figure out how they would establish the regular buying patterns. Is it like, well, a couple albums sold here and there, and then the shop like a block away from your manager sold a thousand? Like, yeah, that... yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and he was, he was like doing crazy stuff. He was picking names out of the phone book and just sending buying them online and sending to them to random people's addresses and stuff. <laughs> so, these, so these people were getting the CDs and contacting, you know, the, the record company to say, <laughs> well, why have I received fuck? this CD? I didn't, I didn't order it. So that was filtering into them as well. Right. It was a shame, a real shame, because, you know, we'd worked so hard for that. You know, it was kind of like all these years, like I say, trudging around playing these clubs you know, it was kind of the point at which we'd all kind of worked towards that day when we signed the deal. And we thought, you know, like what everyone does, you know, when you sign a record deal, you're like, well, that's that's it now. You know, we've made, we've made it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we, we were wrong because it was it was the end, really. It sucks, though, too, because I mean, you say that, you know, with hindsight, but it's, it's always sort of an unfortunate situation where your uh, path is just put in the hands of maybe not the right person and Mm. and really you have no control so it's so hard to even like regret a decision that yeah really wasn't yours you know like you just assume when you when you go into these places that these that these people have sort of like your best interest at heart you know yeah i think if if you know um we had the chance to again we might have done it differently I, i mean i think as a result of that it caused internal problems within the band and eventually i left and i'm definitely happier doing what i'm doing now having complete creative control over what i do now so if i look at it that way you know it's a great it's a good thing because i'm far happier being a solo artist than, than i was as, as part of a part of a band you know yeah 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 um and i think times have moved on so much i mean you know that was 2006 when we got dropped and 
now, do you even need a record deal? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there are times when I'd like some of the promotion of that, but, you know, I, I can release my own stuff. I can put it on iTunes. I make all my own videos. I do everything, and I just have this amazing amount of – I mean, I must be a control freak, but I love it because I just <laughs> – I've got, you know, control over every aspect of it. I haven't got people, which I had in the record company, stylists turning up to photo shoots, telling me what to wear, and people taking their ideas for the videos that weren't, you know, really in keeping with how I had envisaged it when I'd been part of the song writing. Right, right. Often when I'm writing a song, I have a video in my head, you know. I wasn't happy with some of the videos we'd made. You know, there's a lot of stuff that... You kind of get pushed into as part of a record company, you know, when you when you're under the wing of a record company. If you're comfortable making a living, yeah, then I think it's totally feasible to just you know release your own stuff if you have enough of a following. Like you can you can pay some bills. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it kind of suits me because my goalposts have changed. You know, I kind of grew up and I, I just wanted fame and stardom or whatever. But as I've got older. I've realized actually the important, and it's taken me a long time to work this out, but the important part for me is the creativity. And if I don't have that, then I quickly get kind of unhappy. You know, I have to have an output for songwriting. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the important part for me. So as long as I can write songs, you know, I can produce them how I want them. And if I can put them out there and a few people like them, then that's great. You know, and even better if I can make a bit of money from it. You know, I'm under no illusion. I mean, I I don't think my records that I make at the moment would sit well in the in the top ten. You know, they're just not like they're not those kind of records. They don't really sound like you know anything that's in the in the top ten at the moment. And I'm not kidding myself. You know, I'm not really aiming for that. But they should, you know, honestly. Like, I I mean, I. I'm biased because I love, you know, <laughs> this kind of music. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about some of your tracks now. I mean, you have written some really catchy songs, man. Like, really good, catchy songs. Cheers. That's what I kind of focus on, you know, that for me, it's all about the song. Yeah, if you can get an earworm that sticks in people's heads, it's even better. <laughs> Tell me a bit about Not For Turning, which is awesome. Not For Turning was the, f- I guess, the first song I wrote out of the modern So I kind of had this massive kind of feeling of excitement and kind of relief and everything. And I was like, right, okay, going to do totally my own thing here. I can't remember how that one started. It was, you know, whenever I'm writing, I'll be listening to something at that time and, you know, kind of loosely base it on something. It it kind of never ends up sounding like what I was basing it on, but it's always a a good kind of starting point. And I remember at that time I was listening to the Heaven 17 album, Penthouse and Pavement. And there's a song on there called Song With No Name. I remember kind of thinking, yeah, that's a great kind of chord progression. I think I nicked it, actually. <laughs> it's very similar. <laughs> it's, it's very similar, put it that way. I mean, the m- melody over the top is completely different, but that was kind of the starting point. Mm. It's quite a uplifting song. It's kind of got that euphoric feel. I guess the kind of the imagery with the song for me was driving on this big highway you know out into nowhere out into the distance and i tried to get that across in the video and that's kind of how i felt writing the song you know it was kind of like breaking out into the open into the unknown you know and i think that imagery comes across a bit in the lyrics and stuff
you've posted some videos of you in your uh, studio. Yeah. You're just surrounded by keyboards. Yeah. So are you... Are you like a collector? Yeah, I don't like the word collector because that implies that you kind of collect them and keep them under a dust cover and never play them. <laughs> You're a user. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a user, man. Mine definitely get <laughs> mine definitely get played. I've got um, so what have I got here? I've got a, a Juno sixty, which is kind of my first synth. I mean, I, I, that was kind of my first purchase before the days of eBay. We, we used to have a magazine called Loot where you go to the kind of back pages and people would be selling stuff. And I got that one was about 14. So that's the oldest one. I've got a Roland SH-101, which is like an early kind of... Uh, when they put it out, it was meant to be a kind of guitar. You know, it's a very lightweight kind of... But it's, it does these amazing bass lines. I mean, a lot of people who are into kind of the acid house movement in the late 80s bought them because they do these brilliant kind of sub-bass. Really nice. That's I always use that for bass. Mm -hmm. And then I've got something called a Krumar string synth, which I basically got because I saw Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran playing one. And he said in an interview that he used it on all over their first two albums. So all that's those string sounds that you hear on the first two Duran Duran albums is, is this old Italian synth called the Krumar, which was made in the 70s. I managed to pick one of them up on eBay. And then um, I got a Sequential Circuits Prophet 5 which was kind of the ultimate 80s kind of synth. Um, and uh, recently, more recently, a Yamaha DX7, which was kind of the first FM synth after all the analog stuff in the 80s, which, you know, has this really kind of thin, quite a tacky sort of sound, you know, but it was used all over kind of mid to late 80s pop. You know, every sound, every preset in it, you go, oh, yeah, you know, that's thompson twins or yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah that's that's tina turner or you know wh whatever it's, it's brilliant like that um so i actually used that quite a lot on my second album that's one of the things that i've always really liked about depeche mode specifically when i think about like the other 80s music that you know i like and listen to is i always found them to have the most unique kind of strange sounds yeah like you're saying you know, with some of the, the th you know, like the big pop songs, I hear those sounds if I'm, you know, fooling around with like VST plugins and things like that. And I'll recognize sounds, but Depeche Mode, I never find what they were doing. Like, it sounds like they were always just sampling weird things. They were always trying to push the envelope with sounds. I mean, they were... And, and I think a lot of that went on in the 80s. I was reading, even in, I, I think I was reading an interview with Howard Jones the other day, who, I mean, he wrote some great pop songs, but you don't think of his production as being that cutting edge. But he was like, saying that everyone around that time was trying to find the next sound and tr trying to push the boundaries of, of what the synth could do and make people kind of sit up and go, wow, you know, what's that? And yeah, De Depeche Mode definitely did that. I mean, they went through that stage where they were sampling, smashing bits of metal with a mallet and things, weren't they? And on the, on the Construction Time album, they got kind of like bicycle spokes and I'm sticking iron bars in them and things like yeah. this and kind of just <laughs> taking that and putting it to these brilliant pop songs so you get this kind of really interesting juxtaposition of strange production but excellent pop songs and I love that you know that's really what what I've tried to do you know keep the you know the song's got to be melodic the song's got to be catchy a housewife or a window cleaner has got to be able to whistle the song mm. but in terms of production, have fun, you know, make it futuristic, do something different. Tell me about uh, Living My Life. Living My Life, so the inspiration for that one was Steve Winwood. I don't know if you know a song called Higher Love. Mm -hmm. 
again, another really great feel-good record. And I was like, I want to make something that is just going to make people so happy when they hear it, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I used the percussion of that. I actually sampled the percussion at the beginning of that, that record and sped it up a bit. And I had that as the kind of basis, the backbone of the song. And then I just built it up from that. And I don't know where the song came from. It Again, it's another one. I think that a lot of the songs on the album were just a, lyrically, it was just about doing my own thing. You know, you got the line, you know, shout, standing on, I can't remember what the words are for my own song, standing on the rooftops <laughs> or whatever, shouting from the rooftops. It's just kind of this celebration of, you know, I'm living my life. I'm doing what I want to do, you know screw you this is this is what i'm doing whether you like it or not kind of thing some really kind of funky guitar in there as well which kind of was the final piece my friend came in his kind of guitar style is he likes stuff like um bruce springsteen and things like that so i was like god how, how's this gonna work and he just played this great funky little riff over it and it was like kind of nar rogers or something like that and i was just like wow you know this it was a kind of the perfect kind of icing on the on the top that kind of you know when, so when something just happens in a studio and you go yeah that's that's it <laughs> yeah that was one of my favourites on the album, actually. And the video to that, I was in... Um, I always had this idea. I said, the video for this has got to be in some exotic location. You know, I want to make one of those Duran Duran style videos. It's got to be in the sunshine, you know, or, or on a yacht or something like that. And I actually went to Antigua just as a holiday with my girlfriend that year. And we were on this beach and I was like, do you know what? I've got to film a video while I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and we just got the camera out. And I was standing on the beach with my iPhone in my pocket with the song playing just miming it and so whenever anyone asks I was like yeah I went to Antigua to film the video you know <laughs> did I read this correctly is your brother Dominic Cooper he is yes like Howard Stark Dominic Cooper yeah it's funny to say that I met someone the other day and he said Howard Stark as well I've never even seen I haven't even seen him doing that I, I never saw that film but um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's him yeah 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 he's um he's doing pretty well for himself so I'm always trying to get him to tweet, you know, stuff about me. I did get a mention on, he went on um, Leno. It was cool. He, I got a good mention on that and they were talking about my videos and I think I'd made a fan in Jay Leno, actually. He'd done all his research, man. <laughs> He'd seen all the videos and he was quite into it. More into it than my brother, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> 
he was kind of talking about it and I could tell my, bro- my brother really didn't want to talk about it really <laughs> but that was nice you know next day after that I, I picked up loads of uh, fans and stuff so you know he's willing to help out when he can and certainly when I've got this album finished well it's finished now but when it's ready to go um, I'm sure he'll give me a bit of a helping hand because he certainly moves in circles at the moment where you know he's often meeting people I mean he met Duran Duran and he got me a really nice meeting with them that was kind of really cool to meet my idols and Mark Ronson was there as well I had a really good chat with him oh cool and um, so that was a really nice evening well you know with with him being Howard Stark that indirectly makes you Iron Man's uncle (laughs) brilliant I'm going to put that I'll I'll put that on my business card (laughs) (laughs) you've written some songs that were in some Films, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that that's actually, yeah, that's another way that Dom kind of helped out. He was up for this role for this film where he had to play a, a drummer in a rock band. And I think he kind of went to the audition and he goes, if, I'm only doing this role if you hire my brother to do the music. <laughs> he goes, I've got a ready-made band here. He goes, my brother plays keyboards, his mate plays guitar. You know, we, we'll put together a real band. We'll write all the songs for the film. You know, we'll do it as if it were, you know, a genuine band. Because you see so many of these films where the bands are so obviously kind of put together and then, you know, mm-hmm. they're not, they're miming songs that have been pre-written by, in the studio by someone else or whatever. So they wanted to make it really authentic. Anyway, he got the role. So I co-wrote some songs with with a friend of mine, uh, the, the guitarist guy actually, who played on my album. And they were like, "Yeah, these songs are great." We we went into Abbey Road Studios, which was, you know, a massive dream come true for us, and recorded them. And the film is called Tamara Drew, and you're also briefly in it, right? Yeah, there's a scene where we do this big festival, and we went out and did this real festival in in Dorset, and. Uh, the producer came on stage before we came on and said, right, okay, guys, um, the next band that's going to come on, you know, we're going to be filming it. It's for a film. So you've got to really be appreciative and, you know, get into it and pretend you know the band and pretend they're big stars. And I was sat there thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be such a disaster. You know, we're going to be rained on by bottles of piss. You know, it's going <laughs> to... <laughs> I, I just imagined that they would do the absolute opposite and go get these you know idiots off the stage but actually we came on and they went they did exactly as they were told <laughs> they went wild and they were you know they were screaming for it and yeah it's a great scene in the film and it was great for me because you know getting something getting to do some music for a film was just such a, a learning curve and it was such a different so different to writing for myself you know and something I'd like to do more of in the future, actually. A friend who also makes uh, like synthwave music. He was actually one of the people who sort of introduced me to the scene. Yeah. And he cited you as his inspiration. Oh, wow. Uh, he's a guy called Mike Mendoza. He he makes <sighs> songs under the name uh, Hoo-Ha. He's got a couple singles, like really authentic sounding, like kind of 80s style music with a bit of humor in them. When I was talking to him, he's just like, oh, you know, I... Uh, I had been making this music in my bedroom or whatever. And then once I heard Kid Casio, I was like, holy shit, I can. Wow. Like we can do this kind of thing. <sighs> that's cool. I mean, for me, that that is enough. You know, that's that's enough to keep me going. I mean, when I get things, people say stuff to me on Twitter like that, you know, oh, your music really inspired me to do this. And, you know, that's the best compliment you can hear from me. So it's made my day. A lot of the people I talk to are sort of connected in this. There's like a group called uh, Synthetics. Right. 
And it's a lot of stuff, I mean, because I like all the range of the synthwave kind of music. So I like that kind of dark electronic stuff where people are trying to emulate movie scores from the 80s, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then and then there's the other spectrum, like the 80s pop. Yeah. Then there's, you know, like the dark gothic 80s electronic music. Like, it's all it's all there. Well, I checked out that La, La Cassette that you had on your last show. They're, they're great. Oh, yeah. They're brilliant, man. I, I didn't know about them, but they're brilliant. It's a very sort of international scene. Although I am finding that a lot of the pop, like the kind of 80s pop stuff, are people in England. Maybe because that's where the scene, I mean, in the 80s, that's where the scene originated from, didn't it? I mean, I, I guess we, the kind of, that was the last time Britain really kind of ruled the pop charts, you know, and we were selling stuff all around the world with bands like Depeche Mode and... and Thompson Twins and Flock of Seagulls and but I don't think you know Britain has had any uh, you know that kind of impact since when we were talking before how it sort of wasn't around in the 90s and I I have been sort of quietly waiting for this resurgence to happen <laughs> and I'm so happy now because literally there's so many of these guys mostly dudes mm. uh <laughs> you know dudes at <laughs> computers but yeah producing music that's actually really, really good. You know, there, I think there's a sort of a stigma to this idea of a guy in a studio alone, you know, making music that you think, oh, it's going to be kind of cheap or, or whatever. Yeah, but there's yeah. people producing some really awesome music. And like I say, like in the last one I did with Look Cassette, like those guys are fucking good. Yeah, yeah. It's so great to just kind of hear this stuff. And, you know, when you when you support these artists, it's like, yeah, because they're just they're just dudes, you know, they're, yeah. like there's no huge backing or anything. They're just a couple guys who work regular jobs and manage to meet sometimes to to make music. But it's really well from what I've heard of their stuff. It's really professional and well polished. I mean, like you say, you kind of have this idea when people said oh, i make it in my bedroom on my computer you kind of think oh here we go you know because i do get sent links to a lot of stuff where someone's put something on soundcloud and it's normally nine times out of ten just an instrumental track and you kind of listen to it and you think yeah it sounds a bit cheap and they haven't really put any kind of effort into it mm -hmm. and you know sometimes it gets me down because i think there seems to be so much of that and you kind of have to wade through it and it makes it harder for the people who are doing something really great to kind of get through it the sea of crap you know <laughs> because there's yeah so much i completely agree like we use the term bedroom synth or whatever you know like there's that kind of sound but then there are the ones that shine like if it's cool if there's a cool melody i think that's the thing yeah. that's sort of inspiring is that, you know, there was this period of time where in music where like the melody wasn't important. And then when the, the electronic music started to change more to, you know, the jungle and yeah. trance, like yeah. the, the, the dubstep and all this stuff yeah. where melody is not the focus of the song. No, no, no. And melody is the thing that's for me is just the most important. I can listen yeah. to video game music with beeps and blips and stuff like this. <laughs> if I like the melody, I like the song, which yeah. is why I can listen to Mega Man music and stuff because if it's a cool tune, yeah. it's a cool song. Totally to agree me. with you. Totally agree with you. Yeah, that's the same for me. It's just it's, it's something has to have a good melody. With that music you were talking about with dubstep and stuff, it's much more about evoking an emotion in, in the listener that will make them want to dance or creating a kind of ambience of threat sometimes with kind of really dark drum and bass and dubstep you know you kind of you're trying to make something that almost sounds frightening <laughs> yeah with great songs you want to move some people in some way and with melody as well you can do that you know i mean so speaking of the reason <laughs> to where this whole thing started <laughs> 
amazing song. Basically, when I was talking before, Mike said, oh, I, I listened to Kid Casio. You got to hear this song. That's the reason. And he like sang a bar of it. And then I listened <laughs> to it and I was like, holy shit. Like, so that cool. was the first thing I heard of yours. Oh, wow. Cool. song is awesome and i love uh the video as well <laughs> with yeah, all like the the, the cheesy uh, yeah, bad yeah. green screen effects and like the cropping at the sides i thought right i want to do a video which kind of harks back to that kind of early computer game sort of style and i literally bought a green sheet i hung it up in my bedroom i set the camera up and i was just jogging on the spot i must have looked ridiculous i was just jogging on the spot in front of this sheet hanging on the wall in the bedroom and then it was all done you know afterwards i put all the computer game animation on i wanted to try and i don't know if you've ever seen the video f for talking heads once in a lifetime where it's really early green screen technology and i just wanted to kind of get uh, uh, that's why i put on like that kind of suit with a bow tie because in the in the talking heads once in a lifetime video david burns wearing that and kind of making these crazy gestures towards the camera. It's almost like a kind of possessed, man possessed, you know, mm -hmm. and I wanted to try and get a bit of that into it. And there were things, you know, that I was really annoyed about at first that, you know, when my, I lifted my arms, they went out of shot and they were cut off at the end. But actually at the end of it, I just thought, well, do you know, it's meant to look lo-fi and crap. So I kind of got away with loads. <laughs> well, see, I, I actually thought you did that intentionally. Yeah, well, great. 
Because <laughs> you know that look, this the old MTV thing in the 80s when they would yeah. they would take the frame and they would move it around the screen yeah. and, and, and the green screen would be so bad that it would like eat into the yeah, actual it, people. It kind of bleeds into the people, mm. yeah. That was kind of unintentional. It was just because the camera I wasn't using wasn't great and I hadn't, you know, there were folds in the green screen and, <laughs> and you know, stuff. I hadn't ironed it, you know. And But all of this stuff, I, you know, I could have fixed afterwards, but I didn't because you, you're absolutely right, I wanted that. And actually with that one, I went on these forums because I wanted to get a VHS effect. I wanted to make it look like it was recorded on an old VHS tape. Mm -hmm. And do you know what? I thought, oh, there must be a plug-in for iMovie or something like that that will give me that effect. And someone just said to me, dude, just record it on a VHS tape. (laughs) So I dug out the old um, VHS recorder and I literally, I just recorded it onto a VHS tape and then recorded it back into it. And as soon as I'd done that, it gave it that authenticity, you know, it just suddenly it was like, wow, it looks like someone's discovered this tape of this 80s artist in an attic or something I haven't been watched for like 30 years. And I know uh, a few effects artists who do a lot of that sort of in post. Yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that like iMovie <laughs> or even say Final Cut would have these, but it's, it's more like an After Effects sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think even Final Cut actually in the last year, I think they've, they've added something that does something similar to VHS. But um, yeah, a couple of years ago, I couldn't get anything. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, something like, I, I actually used iMovie for that, which obviously I'm not going to find anything on that. You know, it's, yeah. so, <laughs> it's so basic. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. With your tracks... How important to you is the authenticity, like that 80s sort of authenticity? Is that something that's important to you? Or? Yeah, I guess every time I try and veer away from that, and some people have kind of, I don't know if it's slightly different with the British, I say the press, but I mean blogs and anything like that, where, you know, there's still this stigma attached to the 80s where people say to me, oh, you know, it's great, but, you know, if only it wasn't so 80s. And there has been times when I've tried to kind of veer away from that. But nine times out of ten, all the stuff I like is from that era. And my production, I don't know if my songs, the kind of songs I write, lend itself to that type of production. But I kind of always end up going down that path anyway. I'll I'll kind of start off right, oh, this is going to sound quite current, you know, and then I'll go, actually, this would sound really good with some slap bass in there. (laughs) And actually, some stabs on the DX7 would sound really good. And then suddenly, I'm veering down that path. And actually, it's going to sound much better if I veer down that path anyway, because that's where my passion is. And it's much better to make music that you're passionate about, you know. With your stuff, I find that there is still that blend of the old with the new, because although... You know, when I'm watching these videos and you're making sort of mention of the keyboards you use and the soft synths and stuff to to create this sound, like your voice is still sort of heavily treated yeah. or like auto-tuned in a way that yeah. wouldn't have happened before. The thing with the auto-tune, a few people said, oh, you know, why'd you use the auto-tune? But for me, if auto-tune had been available in the 80s, believe me, everyone would have used it. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like the one thing from now that I will happily embrace. For one, it just makes the recording process so much... I mean, if I've spent a month working on a track and it kind of sounds perfect, I want the vocals to be perfect as well. So why wouldn't I auto-tune them? I'd never have an out of, a slightly out-of-tune keyboard on the track. You know, I'd never play a synth that was slightly flat. You know, that, that just isn't my thing. You know, I want everything to be pristine, you know, and, and kind of perfect. Right. 
you know, if autotune is available to me, I'm going to use it. I'm just, I'm just that kind of OCD about things. You know, I will not let any aspect of a vocal get away sounding shoddy. You know, I literally go into it and sometimes I'll be cutting up syllables and vowels and, you know, stitching it back together just because I want it to be perfect. You know, that's what makes a great pop record, you know, the vocal. The idea of autotune, and I understand like it, it does get overused. Yeah. But I've always happily admitted that I've from day one, like the second I heard it in Cher's song, I've always loved it. Yes, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I just, I just love the the electronic sound. This idea that it's like there's a person, but it's like a cyborg or something. Like it <laughs> yeah. adds to the whole synth aspect of it. Yeah. That, that now even your voice becomes electronic, and I've always personally really loved it. Although I know it can be divisive. Yeah, it, it can. It's funny you say about the Cher thing because I remember so exactly where i was when i first we, we were driving back from a gig this was with, with the boy band and we turned on the radio and the first time i heard that record and i was just like wow that you know that is incredible how do they do that and i kind of spent about a year trying to buy kind of pedals and things that didn't quite work until you know i discovered the plugin yeah i think it kind of d depends how you use it but like you say it's that kind of mixture of kind of robot and human it's a bit like the vocoder you know it's it's kind of one step up on from that. You know, the the problem with vocoder is you'd get bored if you tried to sing a whole song through a through a vocoder like what Giorgio Morodi used to use or something like that. But with autotune you can still get a kind of vaguely human feel, but it's balanced, like you say, with that mixture of machine and man, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Actually I've got I'm plugged into one now, hold on. Hello. Hello. <laughs> That's the wrong sound. Let me find another sound. Ah, uh, what's that? Radio. Radio. Double up. This has got some nice harmonies on it. Hold on. Uh, well, that's cool. Yeah, it's nice. It's a lot of fun. I always love playing around with those sorts of things because it just, I'm a huge uh, Doctor Who fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, this has got a Dalek effect on it somewhere. But yeah, like you say, it's just another little gadget to play around with. And I love things like that. So I was immediately kind of, I mean, I'd say probably the, the next album, I, I used it a bit less because I discovered something called Melodyne, which is a way of perfecting the vocals without the effect, you know, so you can get everything exactly in tune. It's more of a software thing where you can kind of line up the vocal to the note. But I still ended up using autotune, you know, here and there just because I love the kind of effect of it, you know. Somehow I knew I'd wind up all on my own again. A new career in a new town, my chance to start Yeah. 
where did you shoot the video for over and over? I went out to meet my brother. He was filming, he was in New Orleans. He was filming something called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. And (laughs) (laughs) he invited us out there. We were going to do some kind of meetings with people about doing the, the score for it. And that didn't happen in the end, but we just had a great holiday. And some people said to us on set, oh, you've got to go and visit this uh, theme park that was destroyed by Katrina. It's this amazingly kind of spooky place. You know, go along, take some photos and whatever. You, you can get in really easily. So we went down there and we kind of bluffed our way past a security guard. I mean, this would never happen in Britain, but we basically just walked in and had a run of the place. Mm-hmm. And there was this massive... Um, you know, Big Dipper. And I said, I've got to go up there. We weren't kind of sure how dangerous it was or anything, but I climbed up and I got to the top and I said to my mate, you know what? Once again, it was one of those kind of opportunist moments where obviously the first thing I think about is got to make a video. (laughs) (laughs) And it was literally just the spur of the moment thing. Again, my iPhone in my pocket, playing the song, miming to it, did it in, I think we did two takes from two different angles, and that was it. And then the police turned up, so we didn't have a chance to do another take anyway. It was weird, because if if I was doing something like that over here, trespassing, and the police turned up, you'd run, you know, or, or you'd go, sorry, you know, arrest me, whatever. So the police turned up, and we're like, oh, my God, we better get down, and we kind of scrambled down this this big dipper down to the bottom. And it was really rickety, you know, the kind of wood was broken and stuff, and it was really, really high. We were really frightened. We got down to the bottom, and we was like shit you know what's going to happen these guys are going to arrest us and they were like high-fiving us going wow you know we saw you guys up there and it looks like you were having fun and it was just like what <laughs> and then they then then they went and that was like wow okay by that time it kind of was getting dark anyway we weren't able to do another take and i was like oh, i don't know if i'm gonna have enough you know but again i got back managed to kind of edit it i kind of thought because of the theme of the song, I thought it'd be nice to put with some old kind of cine footage and I managed to find, source some stuff of kind of old fun fairs. And again, it was the contrast between the kind of old cine footage of people having kind of almost old family home movie footage of people, kind of kids having fun in fun fairs with the contrast from that with this kind of really desolate, grim place. You know, it was such a such an amazing place. I think they've filmed some stuff there since because it's just like a ready-made horror film set, you know? <laughs> right, right. But again, it was just one of those, you know, we didn't go there with that plan or anything. It was just I was in a great place. And whenever I'm in some a good, good location, I, I just think... In fact, of all my videos, the only one that had any kind of planning was the Telephone Line one because I, I, had, I wanted to make a one of those kind of 80s videos which is just in a room you know with the band performing in a white in a white room and so i had to hire the room and and i kind of planned out what i was going to do but all those other other videos were just kind of spur of the moment ideas really the telephone line video is awesome i i laughed a lot watching (laughs) whenever whenever it does the zoom ins (laughs) it it makes me laugh every time that was because i just i'd realized when i got the footage back that there wasn't really that much going on. And so that all that was in post-production, all these kind of crazy zoom-ins and kind of things like that, just to make it more interesting, really. I think of all of them, that was the most kind of tongue-in-cheek 80s. You know, that was a real 
almost a pastiche but but it's a great video man it's that video is awesome cheers man so who are the people in the video then they're the guys that i do my live stuff with so i've got um the guy on guitar ben who co-wrote three or four songs on the new album with me great guitarist real old friend of mine uh drummer was a guy who i kind of advertised for and he was the only guy that turned up (laughs) (laughs) i said you know who's willing to play one of those old hexagonal 80s simmons drum kits and stand up playing it and this is kind of like blasphemy to most drummers you know they're dead dead set against playing electronic kits most of the time let alone really shoddy 80s electronic kits (laughs) but this guy turned up and he was really into it you know and yeah and then uh, another friend of mine william on on keyboards who kind of does some of the backing vocals for me and stuff as well so we'd kind of done a year of doing doing gigs and stuff around london and we did some little festivals and things like that. And I just thought, it, you know, it's going to be a bit boring with just me in the video. You know, it'd be nice to do it like a kind of band, you know, so it looks like a band. Operator. The party you have dialed is unavailable. one of your tweets and you're talking about uh, a new video you're working on and that you are animating it frame by frame yeah it's just the bane of my life at the moment you know this this album (laughs) (laughs) this album was finished in october right so i finished probably recording the album in july i went and had it mixed professionally in august 
And then I had to wait till September or October to have it mastered because I wanted to get it mastered with this guy that had mastered all Tears for Fears and Level 42. And he'd done some great bands in the 80s and he was still going. And we kind of went to this amazing studio in, in London, which was Pete Townsend studio from The Who. And um, he was a really nice guy and he kind of knew what he was doing. And so anyway, the album was mastered. So I was ready to go at the end of last year. But I kind of got this crazy idea in my head that the first song I wanted to release, it had to have an animation video because for me, the theme of the song, which is set in the in the Boer War in like the 1890s, there just wasn't any way I was going to be able to film it. You know, I needed a cast of thousands and a budget of like millions. And I thought, how am I going to do this? The only way I can do it is animation. And so I kind of bought this animation software and started doing it. And it was only after I'd, by about kind of November or December, when I was like, hang on a minute, I've been working on this for like two months and I'm, I'm, I've still only done like 20 seconds. And <laughs> even at this stage, what are we at? <laughs> we're at the end of January now and I think I'm up to the kind of second verse. It's just, it is the most painstaking thing I've ever done in my life. It's a technique called rotoscope, which was the same as I used on the, you know, the AHA video for Take On Me. Right, right. Which is where, you know, you're tracing. So I, I put together the video as a four minute kind of film. Is there any way you can cheat? Like you animate the chorus and then use the same <laughs> use the same animation every time. There will be bits later on that I can I can repeat bits definitely. But as a as a rule, it's not a kind of animating technique that you can cheat really because that you get this effect. I mean, it's very boring. I won't go into it. But when you trace each scene, each frame, you get this effect called boiling, which is where the human hand hasn't quite traced exactly the same line every time. Yeah, you're gonna get that crazy vibrating. Of, exactly, uh... exactly, and there just isn't any computer program that does that so it's literally i'm sat there every day i mean i was doing it before i spoke to you today just frame by frame and some of the frames are okay because at the moment i'm animating a frame of someone pulling a trigger which is pretty straightforward it's just a hand and a, and a but earlier <laughs> a couple of weeks ago i was animating a scene of about a hundred zulu warriors running towards the camera so you can imagine <laughs> it's like tracing a hundred people and i'm doing this and then onto the next frame and the next frame and it's just taking so much longer than i envisaged but i think at the end of the day i'm like well i haven't got a record company on my back going oh this has got to be out by this time you know there's a few blogs and stuff that have got in touch with me going oh when's your stuff going to be out you know but at the end of the day i prefer to just get it finished however long it takes and then kind of be happy with it you know and put it out there and then there was a more complicated scene which was the still i put up on my twitter the other day where it looks like the the paper is torn away and then there's film footage underneath which i use photoshop for that for putting a layer it's all very boring but yeah i kind of layered it underneath and yeah i was quite pleased with the effect be a lot of people said oh it looks like take on me which i'm pleased with <laughs> now i wanted to uh experiment i'm a, a video editor and i do like effects work and so i've always been interested in that exact effect that you're doing but i just knew in my heart that i was never going to have the patience i mean i was thinking you know that if someone was paying, even paying me to do this for someone else or something, I would have given up by now. But it's just because it's for, <laughs> you know, I'm so passionate about that song because it's for my little project. It's just like I will go the extra mile. But I, I tell you, I don't think I've, I, I just can't think of anything I've done in my life which has been so boring. I mean, I've got such respect for animators and stuff now, especially kind of people that I don't know how much they use rotoscoping nowadays. I don't think as much, but certainly the whole of kind of Snow White, you know, back in the 40s was done using that technique. And even right up until kind of um, the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of films that were done completely using rotoscope. And that's like a whole 
two-hour film. Obviously, they had loads of people working on it, but still, man, I've got so much respect for those guys. It just it's so damn boring. Oh yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, it'll end up you know looking how how I want it to look. So I was experimenting. I don't remember what the program was called. I think it was called Natural Animation or something. Okay, this this one's called Toon Boom Studio. It's well. Oh, you know what? That might be it. That's the one where you see your previous, you, you see yeah. the previous sort of overlay and it's exactly. sort of in like a red color. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Onion skin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually use that. I mean, it's got, it's got, this, this program's got loads of great things on it where, you know, you can kind of draw a character and then use this thing, like skeleton thing where you can move the arms and stuff and it really makes it a lot quicker. But because I didn't want kind of cartoony kind of characters, I wanted like a kind of almost like real life animation thing. Rotoscope was the best thing for me because, I didn't have to learn animation, like how to make things look like they're running or how to make things look like they're fighting. I just thought the quick route would be, oh, I'll just trace over film. Yeah, it'd be really easy. <laughs> when in fact, actually, it, it's much more time consuming and, and boring. It's just much less skilled, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, we've been uh, talking for over an hour here. Yeah, man. That's, that's, so, that's been fun. So I can uh, wrap this up. Is, is there anything you want to say or mention here now that uh no that's cool um yeah just hopefully that that the that next single will be out in the next sort of couple of months however much long it takes me and yeah album kind of this year so look out for it <laughs> all right dude well you have a lovely day man it was good talking to you yeah good talking to you man all right take care i don't know Right, that was Kid Cassio. I enjoyed that conversation, and I really do like his music a lot, so you should go check it out. Um, I'll post some links on the website. I should also point out that as of last episode, I'm now getting assistance from a gentleman by the name of He-Mantis, which I'm assuming is not his real name. Uh, he is helping me uh, do some stuff uh, in regards to promotion of the podcast and also doing the episode write-ups on the website, so, um, I'm really helpful. I'm really helpful. <laughs> I'm really helpful to him. You know, I'm really thankful to him, uh, for helping out, uh, cause it is a lot of work to do this show and that's uh, pretty much everything. So, uh, you know, have a lovely day and please listen to the next episode. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye. Why? I just, I literally just ended this like a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll see you at lunch. All right, take care, buddy. <laughs> Bye.